Interlibrary Loan Candide, or Optimism, by Voltaire. Do you want to sync up the track? Yes. Uh, hello, Katie. Uh, who is the title character of the novel we read? That's a really difficult question, but I believe he is Candide. <laughs> wait, uh, okay, were you being silly? Because, wait, why is that a difficult question? Come on! I was being silly. Oh, okay. Cool. <laughs> so, sarcasm. Okay. Um, sarcasm. Uh, no, do you there... need like the do you need the forward slash like sarcasm <laughs> thing that you put on you know, put on threads online to indicate that you're joking? I suppose I do. There was there was no like ulterior motive to that in which I say, but wait, the title character of Candide is actually not Candide. Just you wait but and wait. see. What if Candide is not his real name? What if his real name is Optimism? <laughs> well, I mean, the title is Candide or Optimism. And hence the so... subtitle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no. All right, so here's our boy Optimism <laughs> in Westphalia. Yeah. Uh, uh, but first, an introduction to the podcast. Right, that, yes. That's probably necessary. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Interlibrary Loan, the show where a group of friends get together, read a book that's worth reading and discussing, and then discuss it a little bit by a little bit. Uh, This week starts our section on the classic Candide or Optimism by Voltaire. Uh, We are, of course, reading this in translation, and the translation that we are reading is the Penguin Classics. I believe this was published in 2009... Yes, uh, translated by Theo Cuff. As always, I'm Katie. I'm Sky. And I'm Lauren. And this pu- translation was published in 2009. What? <laughs> burr, 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 burr. Theo Cuff. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I really like this edition that you picked out, Katie. The um, uh, the introduction by Michael Wood is really uh, a good introduction to the to the book um and this is like it's a work of satire from 250 years ago so it definitely needs some introduction yes i really wish all of the like introductions for the books i read in undergrad and grad school were as good as michael wood's introduction i mean some of them probably were but i don't know about you like i often skipped introductions when i was in undergrad because i was a bad student (laughs) (laughs) even though the professor tells you not to i I, some professors i had probably didn't bother to to say talk one way or the other about introductions i also i also feel that a lot of times professors will like have some quibble with the introduction mm-hmm. and then just like tell you not to read it or that it's not good even though it might be very helpful yeah yeah i don't think i learned to appreciate introductions until much later and it could have saved me a lot of hassle and time trying to figure out what the author was trying to say and you know like they do so much of the mental work for you and it's and yeah. it's but it's also you you get so much out of it you appreciate the the text so much more so but, this edition is the deluxe edition yeah. which apart from having some very funny and and fun cartoons on the cover by chris ware it also has like a timeline of voltaire's life which is very good at placing candy it has a context. map mm-hmm. has a map it's got a translator's note, which is very helpful. It's got lots of uh, end notes, which, I mean, I would have liked footnotes, but uh, I'll take what I can get. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and that's something that you'll notice uh, reading this book. There are copious amounts of end notes. 
like so this this is a satire and Mm -hmm. voltaire does not pull any punches really (laughs) at all uh and there are a lot of things that um maybe if you aren't aware of the the social and and religious context of a lot of things um those those end notes are really helpful yeah i i want to clarify when i said boo i'm not saying (laughs) boo to the idea of notes in general i I read like pretty much every endnote. I hate endnotes though. I'm with Sky on this. Yeah. I would much prefer footnotes, but I guess this is, you know, this is meant for general popular consumption and a lot of people don't want to be bothered with footnotes. So, right. Do you know that there are some people out there that prefer endnotes to footnotes? Those monsters. I don't know. Maybe, I'm, I'm presuming a lot. Katie, I don't know what your feelings are on endnotes versus footnotes. I Well, I, I, I do enjoy reading the notes, so I find uh, footnotes much more convenient than endnotes. So I'm in the same camp. Exactly. I don't know, though. If, if Listener, if you are a footnote uh, or an endnote uh, champion and want to give us a good argument for endnotes. I'm looking at you, uh, Avon. I I don't know. Maybe you prefer endnotes, but if uh, I know other, there are other readers we have out there who enjoy reading scholarly materials that have notes. If you want to pitch us why endnotes are cool, uh, <laughs> get at us on Twitter at ILBookcast. And we won't judge. No, no, I'm I'm interested actually to hear. I have a friend from grad school who prefers endnotes, and he's given me his pitch for them before, uh, and I don't agree with him, but it, it's an interesting conversation. Let us begin with Candide or Optimism, translated from the German of Dr. Ralph, with the additions found in the doctor's pocket when he died at Minden in the year of grace 1759. Uh, so Voltaire did not um, acknowledge his authorship of this work until like 10 years after it was published. Right. Uh, and so this sort of weird frame story uh, with Dr. Ralph, who died in a battle uh, at Minden in 1759, is you know part of his way of keeping the text uh, so- somewhat anonymous. I think everyone knew it was him. Well, but it's also you know it's also it gives him some plausible deniability because Voltaire had been exiled multiple times from various places and had you know was not exactly in favor with uh, with the French royalty. So um, so this gives him you know a way to say hey that's not me. And uh, and and still get his his art out there, right? I also thought that the translated from the German bit is is was amusing, and you see kind of his like subtle mockery of Germans throughout and, the text, and not so subtle with and not so subtle like the the names of towns. There's there's yeah. a name of a town in. It's it's in chapter two that is hilarious, and I will not attempt to to pronounce it, but it's just. Oh, I will. I will. <laughs> but it's just a clear ridiculing of of German. Faldbergoff Trabd Dickdorf. Yeah. He's like just making fun of German names because yeah. those, those all basically mean some variety of like town. Right. Or he place. was making no. He was making fun of German literalism and in in German's tendency to string a bunch of yeah simple words together to make more complex words and thoughts and uh 
Yeah, he says it's a composite name which mocks the German language and its compounds. There we go. Yeah. Right, and he's not speaking from a position of um, relative distance when he's talking about the Germans. He spent a lot of time uh, in Germany and around Germans. There's also, I really like uh, Candide's castle, uh, Castle Tronk. Yeah, uh, and even the name of the Baron is just funny sounding. Baron von Thunderten Tronk. <laughs> Tronk like that. Man, what is Tronk again? It was like some reputable news site or something, and they just like changed the name to Tronk for no reason. Wasn't that what happened with that? I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, okay. There was some website that was like a... Or it was some like old publication that was like somewhat respectable, and a couple years ago they're just like, all right, we're going to totally rebrand to make ourselves young and hip and web 2.0. And our name now is just going to be Tronk. That seems reasonable. Like T-R-O-N-C. This is a thing that happened. And basically everyone laughed at them because Tronk is an absurd name. Note to readers. Tronk was Tribune Publishing. I looked it up. Don't correct me on Twitter. Uh, but the Baron of Thunder Ten Tronk in Westphalia. Uh, we, we begin our story with Candide who has grown up in this castle. And the narrator describes him as having the gentlest of dispositions uh, and that he combined solid judgment with complete openness of mind. So that's your very first introduction to Candide and which you will continue to see throughout the story of this like rather pleasant and open-minded and also naive boy. Who despite being punished relentlessly over, you know, over and over and over again, continues to talk about his philosophy of optimism in the world and is is stunned that the world is not the way his professor Pangloss described it to him in his upbringing in Westphalia. I think it's interesting that Candide throughout the, the story is, he's described as naive a few times, but he is more often like given the label philosopher. Yes, exactly. Um, mm-hmm. Like Candide is considered a philosopher just like his teacher dr pangloss so you know i think uh he's he doesn't i don't know yeah i thought that was interesting he's a philosopher the thing about this book too is that it's a philosophical work right but there's not a whole lot of philosophizing in it um i mean there there is but the, the the grand the grand bulk of it is is not really a whole lot of philosophizing. It's, it's like, kind of a critique of philosophy. Yes, yes, it is. And even you start off with even the names, like so, um, Panglos. That that name. Uh, there's a in the note on names, which is another reason that you should read all nice introductory material. Is the name Panglos um, comes from the Greek words pan, meaning all, and glossa, tongue. Hence, all tongue or all talk. <laughs> well, and then there was also a note um, in the... There was an end note on Pangloss's name uh, where he he said that in composing the char- this character, he may have been thinking of this disciple of Leibniz, who is, who is someone that Voltaire had followed prior to writing Candide and a few other of his work of his works. And also he was also thinking of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, but he was, he, so he had these kind of, these characters in mind. And then he, um, 
they, the the uh, editor makes a note saying that he may have been referring to an attack that he wrote towards Rousseau, calling him pensoff, meaning, like, all-knowing. Right. Right. The Michael Wood's introduction um, talks about uh, the sort of, like, anti-philosophy in Candide and mentions that Roland Barthes, uh, you know, basically accused Voltaire of being an anti-intellectual and uh, and thought that the sort of philosophical bankruptcy of Candide was, like, a, a, a big problem. Um, but I think what's interesting, like, when we think of anti-intellectualism, we think of sort of like willful, willful ignorance mm-hmm. and uh, and a, a sort of like blind following of tradition. Uh, That's which is not exactly informed. What, what, exactly. Which is exactly what Voltaire is attacking in this work. Um, and not like, and not what Voltaire is doing here, which is he is specifically attacking the sort of prevailing philosophy of his time, mm-hmm. but not necessarily like condemning the practice of philosophy itself. Although he's not doing philosophy in this book either. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and he even like what, what Panglo studies and teaches this like smash up of words. It's hysterical. Uh, Metaphysico theologico cosmonicology, <laughs> which basically is just calling him a booby. <laughs> uh, and yeah, so we're, we're introduced to Panglos who is, having an affair with this woman at the castle. Paquette the chambermaid. Yeah, with with the chambermaid. And uh, this explanation of, like, Pangloss's philosophy is great. So um, things cannot be other than as they are. Um, and he, he uses the example of we wear spectacles because our noses were made for wearing spectacles. And uh, we, wear, we wear pants be- or... Uh, breeches because our legs are designed for wearing breeches. So it's a very backwards way of thinking about why we do things. Right, right. And so all of this leads to that all is for the best. He's kind of reverse engineering purpose. Right. Yeah, and I mean, so Pangloss repeats over and over and Candide echoes him that this is the best of all possible worlds. So, I mean, this is some... uh, some multiverse stuff, right? We've got all the different possible worlds, and this one is the best one. Why? Because it's the one that we've got, and so it's got to be the best one. Yeah, uh, and you'll see that, too. So at the end of this uh, section, as they're uh, on, on the boat sailing away, and um, Candide uh, repeats that, they're going to another world, um, right, and he is hoping that all is the best in in that world because clearly, in the world that he knows, maybe all isn't necessarily the best. Yeah, I mean, Pangloss goes to his uh, death by hanging, basically, still believing uh, that that is the best of all possible worlds. I think it's interesting that Pangloss, throughout this uh, this section of the book, over and over, like no matter how horrible the things that he sees are he continues to hold this belief sort of unwaveringly. And uh, in the introduction, they discussed that, like, he basically, like, can't bear to, like, recant his philosophy. Like, that's more important than, like, making any sense. Yeah. Right. He says at one point that he he doesn't, um, he doesn't believe... Uh, what he believes because it's true, but because it's his belief. It's a kind of ownership. Yeah. 
I mean, so you know, I um, I was an under uh, in undergraduate as a philosophy major, and one of the first uh, philosophy classes you usually take uh, if you're doing an undergraduate philosophy major is a class on early, you know modern, and by modern we mean like early modern European philosophy, uh, you know things like Leibniz and Spinoza and Rousseau, uh, and I remember that class being like one of the most difficult classes I took in college uh, because the thinking, the optimism, uh, the Leibniz, the Spinoza, the a priori uh, arguments, all of those things are so radically different from how we think about the world now. Um, so I think it's like reading Candide is difficult to get into the mindset of like, these just aren't idiots saying stupid things. Like these, this was what many if not most learned people in Europe believe they believe like some version of this or something similar to this like Voltaire's obviously twisting it to absurd you know lengths yeah it's hard to kind to get into Voltaire and Candide's headspace here and understand what they're resisting because we're we're introduced to to Candide at, at this beginning and he's living this He's been in this charmed life of this wonderful castle and everything is the best that it could possibly be in Westphalia. And then Candy gets the bright idea to court uh, Mademoiselle Cunegonde, mm-hmm. um, which gets him promptly kicked out by the butt. The first of many blows to the butt that Candide would receive. Indeed. So right off the bat in chapter one, Candide is beginning to suffer the cruelties of the world. Um, but still maintaining this innocent trust of Pangloss and his theory. And so Candide goes through uh, the the very beginning of this book is incredibly episodic there. Um, I mean, well, the, the, the book in its whole is very episodic, but Candide is uh, runs into these soldiers who <laughs> recruit the unwitting young man. Yeah. That, that, uh, that section was really interesting and I thought it, w- it was really helpful to see the end notes that, reference that that he was making like he was the blue uniform signal that he was talking about these dreaded um prussian recruiters that would use kind of unsavory methods to trick young men into signing up for the for the army right because he doesn't know what he's doing no uh he he drinks a toast to the king and all of a sudden he's in shackles and you know off to war right and they're like well that'll do all right he's recruited um, and begins his training to be of being a hero is the words that are used uh, and receiving lashes for for not not doing so well. He, he gets 30 one day and then 20 the next day and then 10 the next day. And his fellow soldiers think he's a prodigy yeah. for his progress, his swift progress. Indeed. And I think it's funny, the next line, and he says, Candide, completely bewildered, had not yet figured out quite what was meant by his being a hero. So he, he doesn't really know what what he's gotten himself into. He's just kind of stumbling along. Um, and he, this kind of, this theme of Candide being ignorant to the realities of the world pops up every now and again as we, as we go along. And by the end of of this chapter, he's spared execution by the king because the king recognizes that he's a young metaphysician entirely unschooled in the ways of the world. 
And this establishes a pattern that holds for a lot of the rest of the book. Um, you know, Candide didn't have to get conscripted into the Prussian army. He could have gone to that uh, inn and got a job washing dishes in the back and lived out the rest of his days there happily. But or Voltaire, been massacred in the war. Yeah, mm. that too. And so Voltaire, exactly, like he could have gone either way, right? He could have lived happily ever after or he could have died. And Voltaire makes sure that neither of those happens to him again and again and again. So, you know, he gets conscripted and then he's in the army and then he like sort of accidentally or unwittingly deserts and then they're about to murder him but then he's spared by the king who's like, oh, this is a philosopher like this happens this pattern of sort of getting into deeper and deeper and deeper trouble and then as soon as they're about to be killed in some horrible way they're you know sort of miraculously rescued uh that is the sort of pattern of this of this book and it's like a fairy tale thing right like the this book literally starts out by with once upon a time you know that's the way that it starts it's it reads like a fairy tale Right, which is even funnier, I think. I mean, funny in a dark way. Yeah, I, I kind of felt like, so So I went ahead and, I don't know if I'm going to do this for the rest of the book, but I went ahead and read the first 10 chapters in French because I hadn't read it before. And it was interesting reading, reading this in French, it kind of had the pace and the tone of some of, like, the fairy tales of Charles Perrault. It has that kind of, like, that fast-paced, like, plot developments happen very quickly, but the, just kind of the, like, the tone and levity of it felt like a like a fairy tale in a way, but it's, like, this dark, sinister, like, like you know, well, it's not, I mean, not even dark. It's just, like, this kind of twisted fairy tale that's very political. Right, and that's something that... Any, any translator, and if you read the translator's note, they'll, they'll, they'll say this too, but any translator will say, you know, and, um, at least some essence of the book is lost in translation, um, but they've tried their best to maintain Voltaire's original pacing and, like, even the, the structure of some of his sentences and the way that mm-hmm. he uses semicolons and, um, and, and the speed at which some things happen, so... Yeah, no, I think this is a great translation. I yeah. think right off the bat, I noticed that, you know, they, they did a really, he did a really, really good job in matching the, like, the cadence and the tone. And even the, um, even his his choice of vocabulary worked really well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, reading, reading in English, it still really reads like this sort of fast-paced, rollicking tale. Um, and... Uh, and it would have been even more so at the time of its writing, right? Like now, reading it, I'm slowed a little bit because I keep having to refer to all of the notes, which explain mm-hmm. the sort of like historical context of what's going on. But if you were to read this as a contemporary of Voltaire, uh, you know, you could knock this out in like 40 minutes, you know, oh, yeah. maybe less. It's a, it's a very quick read. I mean, it's a short work, but even, you know, for its length, it's a quick read. So Candide uh, deserts this army that he had been conscripted to. And in doing so, like he's he's trying to find, he's he's running away from the Bulgars, and he's like climbing over heaps of bodies. And the the if the, again, if you're reading the footnotes or endnotes rather, you'll 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 get this. But um, there's a note that says nothing, none of the atrocities in Candide are invented; they were all real. Yeah, that was kind of shocking to me that he's not exaggerating at all. This is like he's being pretty accurate in his descriptions of just how like the gore and and violence that he's describing. Yeah. So he's got 
like heaps heaps of bodies and women clutching children to their blood blood-stained breasts and um brains scattered over the ground amidst several arms and legs and that's uh that's a disturbing image yeah it's it's pretty gross there's a lot of there's a lot of gross depictions of grossness in this book but i think this is like the point that voltaire is is making is like like how absurd is it to to talk about the the best of all possible worlds when there is so much ugliness and horror in the world that we live in. Right. Right. And so along with that, like, so Candide is basically a beggar. He's tr- uh, trying to, to find some, some shelter and gets berated by the, um, this uh, man and his wife who, or the, the orator, the, so it's a, 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 a Protestant priest. Kind of like a preacher, yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, ask him if, if, if he shares their same Protestant views. And that the Pope is the Antichrist. Right. Uh, and as he doesn't, they kick him out on his butt. He says, I've not heard it said before now, replied Candide, but... Whether he is or not, I am in need of food. And that is a um, structure that's repeated a lot throughout Candide. Uh, someone will ask him some question or someone will make some uh, st- some kind of philosophical statement and Candide will comment on it and then, but I need food or, but you need to be tended to medically or, but we need to get out of this situation. Right. There's uh, later in this uh, section when they survive the Lisbon earthquake, Candide is wounded by falling rubble, and the and Pengloss is asking him this philosophical questions, and Candide says, "Yeah, cool, dude. Um, could you get me some medical treatment?" <laughs> yeah, 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 cool. But uh, I'm kind of dying over here, so. <laughs> So after this happens, he runs into Jacques, who is an Anabaptist, and um, he is kind enough to take uh, to take Candide in, and um, and even offers to like have him apprentice in his in his workshop, which he he states to work in his in his Persian fabrics workshops, such as are common in Holland, which. I I don't know if you guys caught this, but I thought it was really funny that he's talking about like Persian fabrics being made in Holland because it's kind of like winking at the, you know artificiality and this idea that like all of you know like of fine goods being a ruse and you know this just being a way to trick people into paying a lot of money for supposedly you know exotic goods. <laughs> Yeah, the Anabaptists, the the notes tell us, are, you know, had sort of given up their radicalism and become sort of like burghers and uh, and tradespeople, and and this earned Voltaire their respect. But it's, I mean, you could see this as kind of being like playing into offensive stereotypes, the same way that people make jokes about Jews being, you know, like money grubbers and um you know like like 
all of the jokes about like you know bankers and you know and being crooked and just out to get a buck. Yeah, I mean Voltaire is pretty anti-Semitic, um, and his his depiction of Jews in this book and elsewhere in his writings are not charitable. Um, his depiction of the Anabaptist. Uh, is much more charitable. He seems to be a genuinely good person. Until he kills him off. It's, you know. Right, exactly, yeah. But, well, I mean, but Voltaire's the, making the point that, like, no good deed goes unpunished. Right, that this, you know, the, Jacques the Anabaptist is the the kindest person that we meet so far, and then, like, pages later, he's killed. So, sad Unceremoniously day. murdered in cold blood. Yes. Drowns in the, in the ocean on his way to Lisbon. Mm-hmm. Um, but so Candide takes this too as another, um, example of that, that, that Pangloss, Pangloss is right. Like surely everything is right in the world because this nice man is helping me. Uh, and follow that the next day, uh, Candide comes across, uh, a, a, a wretched creature missing Missing the end of his nose and with black teeth, um, and, and and teeth and, falling out like with every word he utters. And who is this wretched beast but Doctor Pangloss himself? But we don't learn that until the next chapter. I thought this was a really interesting way to end this chapter because at this point, Candide has been sort of rehabilitated to a certain extent. He's think things are looking good for our boy Candide, and he's saying like, oh, maybe this is the best of both worlds because I'm doing pretty okay right now. And then he's confronted by this description of this, you know, like hideous man who's, you know, in poor health and dying and has like a nose falling off. And then it just ends. Like, we end with that description. So again and again, Voltaire, whenever Candide thinks that things are going pretty good, uh, and whenever we might be tempted to think that, Voltaire immediately shows us the, like, evils and, and ugliness of the world. Right. Um, and that's his his critique of this, like, very simple optimism that everything's going fine for me now, so everything must be great. Um, and then cutscene to this wretched, wretched man. Yeah, with all of these kind of like leading ends onto the next chapter, it's 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 surprising that this wasn't you know made to be published in a newspaper in a like kind of in a serial fashion, in a, in a yeah. serial fashion, right? Because like you get these really kind of cliffhanger endings, and in, they're in these kind of short, digestible chapters that could easily have shown up. In, in a newspaper somewhere. Uh, you know, if it was written a little later, it would have been written by, like, Dickens or Hugo, but it would have been, like, 3,000 pages long. Right. Yeah. And and could it even have been published that way? Could, like... It would have lost some of the the pace, mm-hmm. you know, the, you know... Yeah. I mean, like, Dickens, for instance, is an author who is interested in showing his readers the, like, ills of society but not in as pointed or like philosophically directed way as this and not in as shocking a way i think right you know when you read dickens or other like 19th century novelists like him there you know the the social commentary is also buried in a sort of sea of words and and description and and plot because you know he's a very good novelist and he's writing like you know something to be read um Whereas this is, like, distilled to its essence. Yeah. So Candide discovers that that this man is Dr. Pangloss, 
and uh, learns learns the news of what went down back in Westphalia. Uh, and and it's 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 all quite horrible. Um, Pangloss tells him that Mademoiselle Cunegonde is dead. Um, that the 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 Baron's throat was slit, or no, they smashed in the Baron's skull. Um, and poor Candide faints. Uh, and and Pangloss also reveals that this disfiguring disease, this uh, he's contracted syphilis from uh, from Paquette, and gives this ridiculous um, who genealogy. Got it, yeah. <laughs> Who contracted it from from this person who contracted it from this person and candide like immediately says like this this is horrible is surely the devil is its source and pangloss sticking to this absurd absurd idea says oh no of course not uh it is an indispensable feature of the best of all possible worlds a necessary ingredient yeah because if this hadn't happened you wouldn't have chocolate yeah yeah, and so this is this example of, don't you hate it when people tell you, oh, but without suffering through the hard times, you wouldn't know the good times, <laughs> right? So this is this is Voltaire, like, stabbing that um, idea. <laughs> the Pangloss's discussion of syphilis, I think, is, like, particularly interesting. He, he claims, which I guess might have been, like, a view at the time, that it was, like, brought to Europe by uh, Columbus as, like... From the Caribbean. From, from the New World, but that, like, people in the New World are immune to it, and also, like, non-Europeans are immune to it, but, like, won't be forever. Eventually, they'll get theirs. It's, very, it's a very strange account of what syphilis is and where it came from. None of it is true. Like, it's a disease that was designed just to punish Christians for their, you know, for their bad behavior. Um, so anyway, I guess uh, Candide is able to convince uh, the Anabaptist to uh, pay for, I guess, medical treatment for Pangloss. And uh, Pangloss turns out okay. He loses an ear and an eye, but otherwise he seems to be fine. Also, that's also not how syphilis works. And then he becomes, uh, and then he, because he can add good, he becomes uh, the bookkeeper for the Anabaptist. And then they're off to Lisbon for the book, for the, um, for the Anabaptist business trip. Yeah, I mean, they get to go uh, to the big conference with the Anabaptist <laughs> and, uh, and stay in the big uh, convention center hotel and uh, get some swag from the various Persian fabric uh, manufacturers. But alas, as soon as they arrive, what should happen? But the earth opens up. Oh, well, first their ship sinks. Oh, I mean, for, we yeah. mentioned this earlier, but like the ship sinks and uh, the Anabaptist drowns and everyone uh, dies except for the sailor who murdered the Anabaptist and Pangloss and Candide. Yeah. But they wind up in the harbor but just they, in time for the earthquake. But they survived, so it's still the best of all worlds. Yeah, still still cool. They're yeah. still cool. Even though the Anabaptist, who had taken pity on Candide and accepted them uh, uh, onto his ship, even though this nice man has been brutally murdered, uh, it's it's still the best of all worlds. It's it's still great, guys. Uh, and and. And sure enough, though, at once hardly a moment or hardly do they set foot in the city, still weeping over the death of their benefactor. Then they feel the earth tremble beneath them and everything breaks apart and there's a great earthquake. 
and people are dying and houses are collapsing and there's great suffering um and yeah it says 30,000 people died but actually i think wasn't it more like 60,000 um so the the uh the note says that between like 15 and 60,000 people died and at the time people said that like 30,000 people died yeah they also he also describes a boiling sea rising in the port that shatters the vessels lying at anchor so you have the the resulting tsunami from the earthquake going off and you know yep causing further destruction at sea and this is uh, an account of a real earthquake that had really happened in what like 1755 something like that mm-hmm. um, th- and uh, it's interesting this uh, Candide takes place it, it doesn't take place outside of time like many historical events are referenced but they none of them fit up uh, you know the the earthquake would have been roughly contemporary to when the book was written but they talk about the Bulgars and the Avars, which are like mid-first millennium, uh, like sort of barbarian groups in in the area. So they wouldn't have actually been around. They're sort of stand-ins. It's, uh, you know, part of the fairy tale nature is that the time period is sort of purposefully confused. Well, and it's also a way of uh, directing criticism towards Germany and France without... Um, saying so uh explicitly in order to you know i mean that uh, while that also allows him to deny criticism from censors it you know it it kind of enhances the nature of the the tongue-in-cheek nature of the story uh so this this earthquake as we said earlier that like candide is lying here injured gravely injured and asks for some help and Pangloss takes this as another opportunity to uh to to think about the the connection between the earthquake that happened in um in Lima and this one in Lisbon and here's another instance of Candide's reply nothing is more likely but for the love of god some oil and wine (laughs) (laughs) um what do you mean likely? Retorted the philosopher. So even after he, even after he, uh, he insists, come on, help me out here. Pangloss picks up the the one little bit that he can make some kind of phys- philosophical argument with, and and goes on and on and on until Candide faints again. Those um, philosophers and- always philosophizing and never doing any good. Yeah, and never doing anything smart because right after this. Pangloss describes his philosophy to an agent of the Inquisition. He does not take very kindly to it and has him hanged. Uh, right. He's he's hanged for uh, denying original sin and uh, and Candide is hanged for listening. He's not hanged. Candide is not hanged. Ha- Candide is condemned by the Inquisition for, what is it, for like listening. For listening. Politely. Yeah, Candide is flogged. So what they're doing here is they are going to have a magnificent auto de fe, which is a show of faith that they are doing because uh, surely they need to make up for something after this um, uh, horrendous earthquake that, 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 that God has given them. Also, the sal- it's like the salvaging. Yeah. From, uh... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So um, they they burn the... Let's see. Candide uh, is flogged. Um, they burn a Biscayan and, a, and two Portuguese. 
and Pangloss was hanged. What about the um? What about the two Jews who didn't eat their bacon with their chicken? Those, yeah, those, those are the Portuguese. Are the Portuguese. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the the, the Portuguese Jews. Uh, and then what's what's great is like directly after that description, that same day the earth quaked once more with a terrifying din. And so that's in, in reference to the actual aftershock, but but also so they they have this show of faith, and then immediately after, more earthquake. Oh well, so much for so much for a show of faith. Yeah. Um, so, Candide manages to escape again, uh, and like crawls away and is is helped up by this old woman. And this old woman takes him in and feeds him and uh, like treats him with ointment and gives him clean clothes. And takes him to this, like, kind of idyllic little cottage. Um, Gives him a bunch of ointment to rub on himself and... On his buttocks. Yep. <laughs> his flayed buttocks. Though, yep. though she has only one buttock as a seat. <laughs> yes, as she she tells us multiple times, she has only one buttock. Uh, and it turns out that who does this lady serve? None other Saruma. than... What? <laughs> Who do you serve? <laughs> Who do you serve? Oh God, Saruma! I couldn't hear you, but I did the second time. Okay, that was horrible. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can edit it out. Some talking Tolkien no. flashbacks. No, it was great. Leave it in. <laughs> Whom do you serve, Saruma? <laughs> Okay, so lady does not serve Saruman. No. She uh, the lady Kundagon. Right, who Pangloss had told us not s- several chapters ago, the lady Kundagon had been killed. Um, but in fact, she is not. And so Candide she's is re- raped and stabbed, but she's okay otherwise. Yeah, yeah. She, she says like, oh, sometimes those things don't end up being fatal. Right. <laughs> Disembowelment doesn't always end yeah, up right, in, you yeah, exactly. in, in you losing your life, even in, uh, in 18th century France. Right. But remember, this is a fairy tale. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, so, so Kunigon tells her story. And all of the atrocities that that she has endured. Um, so like Candide, is, so Candide tells her what what's happened to him, and it's all pretty straightforward, and 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 like spares tries to spare the detail, but um, Cunegon tells her fate. So the Bulgars come and um, ravage the castle and uh, takes her as a prisoner of war. And then she's sold to this man, Don Issachar, who is a Jew, um, and basically takes her as his mistress. And then eventually she gets also shared between uh, the uh, Don Issachar and the Grand Inquisitor. She does note, um, and I think it, we're supposed to not necessarily believe her, that she has resisted the advances of both Don Issachar and the... Uh, and uh, the Inquisitor, because a lady can be raped once, but after that, she, like, knows better. Yeah, and then uh, supposedly this is what makes them, this, this is why they still both love her, is that she's not given in to their advances. Mm-hmm. Right. 
but so basically they're uh, they have made this arrangement to share her um, and she 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 was view she saw the uh, auto de fe happening and she it was she who actually saved um, Candide who sent her her old woman um, help down to down to rescue Candide and this arrangement between the Inquisitor and the uh, and Don Issachar is uh, very funny. Like they they like split her up between the different days of the week. Yeah. And then they're always arguing over like who gets her on Saturday, like, night. Saturday night because it's like the crossover between their two Sabbath days. Right. Like, does it belong to does Saturday night belong to the to the Jewish Sabbath or to the to the Christian Sabbath? Um, and what do you know? It is Saturday night, and guess who shows up? Yeah. So here comes Don Issachar, and Candide thinks this through very quickly and decides he's going to kill him. Yeah, Don Issachar draws a long dagger, and Candide has conveniently been given a fine sword by the old woman. Along with for, his clothes. For reasons that are not made clear. Um, for reasons of pure convenience to the plot. And, <laughs> uh, and runs him through with the sword. And then, guess what? It's Saturday night. And uh, after midnight, guess who shows up? Because it's his turn. It's the Inquisitor. And Candide... Thinks fast and is like, oh, this isn't going to go well. And he just kills him too. Right. And Cunigan's response to this is, is is great. She's like, she says, what on earth has got into you who were born so gentle to do away with a Jew and a prelate in the space of two minutes? And Candide responds, my dear young lady, when you are in love and jealous and have been flogged by the Inquisition, there's no knowing what you may do. So Candide has basically admitted that you know his um his purity and innocence is pretty conditional he does not have the gift of that ignorant bliss that he had back at the castle he has seen the world indeed (laughs) in this very small amount of time and oh candide if only you knew um what you would see next so they flee uh on these horses and they're trying to get to cadiz so that they can go to the new world uh, and and they're robbed. Yeah, that's like almost like that's that's sort of like handled very quickly. Like, oh yeah, also they're robbed of all their money. Yeah. Um, but also, so so Candide, like, he he becomes a captain because he goes through these like training paces that he had gone with with the 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 Bulgar soldiers. And immediately becomes a captain, and so that's how he's able to get on this ship <laughs> with his lady and uh, and the and the old woman. Um, and so they're sailing, and this is where he's saying we're going to another world. And Candide remains hopeful that in this this new world is truly as Pangloss says it is that uh, everything is is for the best in this new world because. Man, he's seen some of this, some of his world, actually, now. And maybe it isn't all so good. Yeah, and so uh, Kunigan says, Well, you know, old woman, you you may not understand all this bad stuff we've been through, but it's pretty bad. And the old woman says, Ha! I only have one buttock. Let me tell you my story. <laughs> and that's where, we, that's where we ended for today. I, I want to know what happens to this woman's buttock. 
Yeah, uh, her story's pretty great. We will find out next week on Interlibrary Loan. <laughs> but did anybody have a favorite, um, a favorite quote or anything from today's reading? Yes. Oh my God! In <laughs> chapter one, when uh, Doctor Pangloss is. Uh, is kind of uh, after he's introduced, he he's talk there. He's talking about that, that Kunigond is walking around the grounds of the castle, and uh, in the in the park, and she caught sight through the undergrowth of Doctor Pangloss giving a lesson in experimental physics to her mother's chambermaid. Uh, and I thought the uh, like calling. <laughs> The affair that he's having with, uh, with the chambermaid experimental physics was was very amusing. Yeah, that's pretty good. Mademoiselle Kundigan had a natural aptitude for the sciences, and she <laughs> noted breathlessly the repeated experiments to which she was witness. She saw clearly the doctor's sufficient reason, both the wit- both the effects and the causes, and she returned home very, very agitated, agitated <laughs> very thoughtful. And very much filled with desires to be a scientist. Reflecting that she might yet prove to be the sufficient reason of young Candide, who might in turn prove to be hers. Indeed. Candide. <laughs> so, Pangloss, so it's af- after the uh, earthquake happens. Mm-hmm. And so Panglo- Pangloss is consoling them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... Uh, but Pangloss consoled them, assuring everyone that things could not be otherwise. This is all for the best, he said, for if there is a volcano beneath Lisbon, then it cannot be anywhere else, for it is impossible for things to be elsewhere than when than where they are, for all is well. Um, I, I, I don't know. I just, I just love all these absurd, ridiculous statements made by Pangloss um, that are uh, just a sheer... Um, ridicule at like this simplistic optimism um that that voltaire is criticizing if if there's a volcano here it can't be anywhere else so at least there's that yeah so it's this idea that like that if you know it's this idea that if you know if the volcano's there it's because god couldn't put it anywhere else because if god had intentionally put the volcano there then that would mean that god is cruel and that's not really possible yeah um so uh Jacques the Anabaptist, uh, right before he is uh, killed in the shipwreck, uh, says, uh, you know, Dr. Panglass, as usual, is, is going on about his optimism. And uh, Jacques the Anabaptist says, uh, mankind must have corrupted nature just a little, he would say, for men are not born wolves, yet they have become wolves. Um, and then he goes on to talk about various... Uh, injustices men do to one another i thought that was like a a good oh what's the word i'm looking for uh it's like a maxim but not a maxim uh it's like a terse thing it starts with an a i'm totally losing assertion this. Uh, no. axiom uh i guess axiom but i don't think that's what it was anyway anyway i thought it was cool i'm done now <laughs> what happened to you candide we thought you was cool but alas uh, oh, did anybody have any other uh, recommendations to make outside of the text this week? Aphorism is the word that I was looking for earlier. Aphorism. For no particular reason. Okay, great. Um, yes, other recommendations. Lauren, do you have one? 
Um, so this is not really like related to art or culture or anything, but I've been making, I got, so I got an ice cream maker for Christmas and I'm just starting to make homemade ice cream and I've been having so much fun with it. Guys, make homemade ice cream. It's like, it's like one of the best like kind of experimental dessert things you can do and even if you screw it up it still tastes delicious i have been enjoying the fruits of lauren's labor with this <laughs> ice cream i just finished turning i just finished turning a batch this morning that is uh vanilla bean scotch ice cream with drizzles of dark chocolate swirled into it yeah um, that sounds amazing i can't wait i'm so excited pretty great yum uh, well, speaking of food, I my uh, recommendation this week is a Netflix series that I just discovered last night. Um, some of my friends introduced this to me. I didn't even know. I didn't even hadn't even heard about it. But it's on Netflix, so you can search it. Um, search for Samurai Gourmet. Which, Samurai Gourmet. Yes, Samurai Gourmet is a Netflix series, and. Um, I've, I've watched like the first three episodes of it and it's delightful. Basically what it is, is it's this, um, 60 year old man and I cannot think of his name, but anyway, he, um, he retires from work and so now he's free to do whatever he wants with his time basically. And so he decides to like be inspired by his inner warrior his inner samurai and do what he wants and it's all adventures with food <laughs> so it's just like this old man going about his day every day and you know going to some restaurant and eating something and um like associating it with memories or just 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 plain enjoying the food because it's great food and it is delightful and sweet and adorable and people should watch it that sounds great. That sounds fun. Yeah. Um, I'm going to talk about another podcast. Uh, so if you listen to our podcast and you uh, are done with, with it and you're like, huh, I wish I had some other podcasts to listen to. Um, this is another one of my f- favorites. Um, it's a podcast called Futility Closet, uh, which is um, it's hosted by a husband and wife. And I think their, their hobby and, and I guess at this point their job is just um, coming up with uh, stories uh, from history that are unusual or interesting or improbable. And they do uh, a lot of research to make sure that these are actually verified and things that like really happened aren't just like tales and legends. They're very good at explaining the story in a compelling way um, without uh, sensationalizing it. Um, so they've got uh, tons and tons of episodes, uh, including one about a uh, flood of molasses that covered downtown Boston, Um, one about uh, a family who lived in complete isolation in Siberia for years and years uh, without ever seeing other people. Uh, They have stories about, like, famous murder mysteries and things like that. Very entertaining podcast. Each episode is, like, half an hour long, so it's pretty quick. Um, So I highly recommend that podcast, Futility Closet futility closet
Um, so that is it for this week. Uh, next week, join us again. We will be reading chapters 11 through 20. 20, yes, of Candide. Um, so we will see you next week. I'm Katie. I'm Sky. And I'm Lauren. Thanks for listening. Ta-da! Enter, enter, enter library alone. Please rate us high, high, high on iTunes. Find us online at illbook.club. On Twitter we are at illbookcast. Thank you to our generous, smart, beautiful, awesome Patreon donors. We couldn't do it without you. Okay, 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 back to robot sleep until next week.